G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Research Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC Research Podcast. We don't ask for anything in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could just pop to Apple Podcast or iTunes and leave us a review. A five-star review would be very beneficial to us um, to uh, allow to get this information out to the people who are interested in it. Sadly, there are no, no reviews that can read out today, but hopefully it will be uh, next time. It does help our metrics, um, and uh, one day um, we'll all understand sort of how that how that works for the analytics to make it easier for people to access this, this show. Um, but we could really uh, appreciate it if you could spend a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review. So today we're joined by Dr. Mandy Demestra, who is a reader here at the RBC in Reproductive Immunology. Thank you very much, Mandy, for joining us. Pleasure. Um, so uh, in, in our uh, discussion today, I think it'd be, it'd be great if you could uh, maybe tell our listeners sort of how you came to be uh, sitting here in this wonderful studio. That we have. <laughs> yeah, I'm very impressed with that new studio here. Look, it's great to be here, Dom. And um, I guess, I, as I just mentioned to you, it's amazing. I've been here for 10 years as of this month. So it's quite a fun time to look back and reflect on everything that I've done here and, and how I got here. Um, so I guess over the last 10 years, I, I came here initially because of a passionate interest in teaching and, and research. So that's sort of what brought me here to start with. And I've been lucky to be able to follow that path um, since then. When you yeah. when you left, uh, so, so you graduated at Sydney mm-hmm. Uni and then and then did you did you want to always go into research and teaching or, or yeah. what, did you, what did you do? So that's a good question. So I graduated from Sydney in 98 and then I actually was passionate about going into equine practice and that's what I initially did so I I spent several years out in equine specialist practices and it was actually out there that I started to get really interested in neonatal medicine in foals and I was lucky enough to work up at Scone um, Veterinary Hospital for a couple of seasons and I both as a a student I worked with a wonderful vet Catherine Chicken and then um, Jane Axon took over the unit up there and I got to train with her for a couple of years and we'd have up to 100 foals a month through the unit which was was a huge caseload probably bigger than anywhere in the world so you got to see lots of neonatal outcomes very sick foals just just after they're born in the or in the months that ensured and I guess that was where I started to develop an interest in pregnancy which is where I've headed to today and so I started thinking when I looked at these foals that were coming out with these issues was there anything we could be thinking about back in the pregnancy period that could could prevent them so um, I continued on in practice for about three years full-time and then I continued to work part-time in my PhD, but I was more and more interested in research and so over that period. Were you, were, you, um, were you encouraged to ask those questions? Because obviously I imagine I've, I've been to uh, Scone once upon a time and, uh, and it, it's quite an intense place and obviously the, the, the clinical activity is, is very high. So, so were, there, uh, were there other people who were, who were um, supporting you during that time trying to encourage you to think about these questions or is it something that you reflected on yourself and, and, uh, and try to work out yourself some, some answers? Um, I think uh, 
it's very busy <laughs> there and so we didn't have a lot of time to to do that type of reflection during this during the season but I think it was the curious it's often in your mentors isn't it which I'm sure you've experienced as well that sort of ask things in a certain way and ask questions in a certain way that will start to get your mind ticking and thinking about things things differently and I'd been lucky enough as a vet student back at the University of Sydney to travel to the States twice for research programs so I went to North Carolina State and to Cornell as part of their big leadership training um, programs for undergraduates so that sort of gave me the initiating ideas of how to think about things a little bit differently and I think it was that combined with sort of thinking about the the foals we're treating thinking about the fact in clinical practice we often don't have the answer and actually I was really frustrated by not knowing the answer and wanting to understand more about why we didn't and I think it was those two things together that made me think about doing some further training um, in research. And so and did, then, did you say you did it part-time PhD or did you...? No, I just managed... Uh, because I'd worked out in practice before, I did weekends and, and consultancy over that period. Okay. So I did my time in practice and I started a PhD down at John Curtin School of Medical Research, which is part of the Australian National University. It's probably most famous in the veterinary world because it's where the Nobel Prize veterinary surgeon <laughs> winner, Peter Doherty, um, did his work on MHC. So... Um, it's well known um, for that and it has a, a lot of preeminent sort of biomedical research. Um, and I chose it actually because I'd been trained in the, in the States to really follow PhDs where you get a really good research training. Even though I was passionate about my horses, I sort of had drummed into me by these wonderful mentors that I really had to go and seek out to look at things a little bit differently and, and utilise some of the cutting-edge sort of um, procedures and, and techniques that were available. So I ended up going there and doing a PhD in, in biomedical sciences using working on human cells and a lot of mouse models as well um, of both cancer, so looking at tumour cells and looking at immune cells and some of the molecular mechanisms that regulate how they function and act, okay. which probably seems a long way from... <laughs> Falls, doesn't it? So, how, <laughs> looking how, at did you, how did you crowbar that back <laughs> yeah, into Yeah, so what I did then is I sort of took all this training that I had with my interest and in clinical background and went and did a postdoc over at Cornell with um, Professor Doug Anzac, and that was in reproductive immunology where we looked at reproduction of, of horses and, and the immune system in pregnancy and that sort of brought those two back together. So he runs a, a fantastic lab over there where he's been funded by the NIH to do basic science research on horses for about 25 years continuously so he's really um, a world leader in that area so I was really lucky to go over and sort of then be able to draw these two sorts of training experiences together and try and consolidate them into the career I was really interested in which is working in pregnancy in the horse and understanding the key mechanisms that are required for a successful pregnancy. Are horses uh, particularly unique or do they share some uh, similarities with uh, with us or mice? Or... That's a really good question. I got a few laughs from a medic conference I was speaking at a few years ago because I said women and, and mares are quite similar, so <laughs> I could get away with that as a woman. <laughs> but what I meant by that is actually women are having children much later and actually horses are bred well into their teens, unlike a lot of other veterinary species like cow and sheep. Um, which aren't continuously bred um, and into 
much older ages. So mares are often often bred into the equivalent of what would be sort of 30s, 40s um, in, in people. And so as a result, we actually probably face some unique but also some similar problems um, in regards to pregnancy losses, for example. So in the horse, we see a rapid increase in, in pregnancy loss at, at all stages related to increasing mare age, and that's what people see in, in women as well. Okay. And, and what, do you, uh, what sort of areas are you currently looking at, who your group is currently looking at? Yeah, so so currently we really we have we have two arms to the lab. One is a very sort of basic science arm where we really want to understand those fundamental regulatory processes in the placenta and what makes a successful healthy pregnancy and a successful healthy placenta to support that. And that's both of those things are required to have a healthy fetus and a, a healthy baby, essentially healthy foal. And so we do a lot of work around that. And then the other arm is trying to understand if they have failed, if these pregnancies have failed, what went wrong, what's the pathology behind that. So um, for the latter part, which we've been really focusing on, particularly making a lot of progress in the last couple of years, we work really closely and instrumentally with clinicians and pathologists and epidemiologists. So we have quite a large team, stud practices, and really it's only possible, I think, by bringing together sort of all those people and that's really helped us start to develop some new systems. Um, for example, one of the biggest stumbling blocks was in studying early pregnancy loss was you actually couldn't get any pregnancies to study. So generally the, the dogma in the field, the thought was that, well, we can't find them. We don't know what causes these pregnancy loss, but we don't have any material to study, so how do we make progress? So the first thing we did about five years ago um, is to try and overcome that, that problem. And with some amazing clinicians actually flushing out these pregnancies as they, were, as they failed, we were able to develop new techniques to be able to isolate these pregnancies, isolate cells from them, and we're just starting to um, be able to understand the genetics of this, these early pregnancies that fail and, and understand why they might fail. So that's been the, the big sort of stumbling block, I think, that we've needed to overcome. And, uh, and are, are you finding... Um sort of reasons for these uh, early early failures yeah so we've done we've taken two approaches so we've got the material out and what we were wondering is whether they had aneuploidies which is a common reason why older women will have pregnancies that fail because they have either extra copies or loss of a copy of a chromosome and in horses we don't really know much about this or speculated that that could be the case um, so, so far we've managed to look at, at 12 of these pregnancies that have failed in the early period and we haven't found any aneuploidies, <laughs> which really surprised us because we, we thought that would be the, the obvious reason. Um, but what we have found is short segments, small parts of the chromosome that are either duplicated or lost. So we're currently investigating the significance of that and whether that could be an underlying... It's a normal process that you get this copy number variation, extra pieces of the chromosome that are duplicated or lost, but we're now trying understand whether that may be associated or causing the losses as well so that's sort of the the future work and we've got a lot more material we need to go back and and look at these aneuploidies again um and so are you getting um this this material from like local local practices or yeah we've got two we work with um both the new market practices um who have a very large caseload up there and, and all their stud farms who have been who've opted in to the project and they have worked very hard to, to 
we've got about 55 of them now I think that we've had come into the lab to, for us to study and that's really only due to their the hard work and persistence at, at flushing those out and, and taking the time to do that and it does provide some benefits to them clinically too because they can rebreed these mares more quickly by flushing out the uterus. Okay, and and um, and so you're you're finding out like clinically is you know what's what's going on. We're looking mm. at this clinical material and the hope to feed that back to them to to change their their practices. Yeah, exactly. So we're hoping to have a down the tracks like a diagnostic test, for example, where we could actually be able to feed back to them the cause of the the pregnancy loss. So to give you some figures, I had an undergrad student here work with me a number of years ago, and we went through records for over six hundred failed early pregnancies, and we found that in eighty percent of cases we have no idea why they failed so it really is the big black big black box i call it we have no idea what's really going on with those so we're hoping we can start to reduce that number quite substantially and to mend in these these are really you're looking at factors for the for the um, for the mayor and the and the placenta and and, and mm-hmm. foal i suppose so, so you, this is um not to do with viruses or bacteria or anything like no, that? No, interestingly, there's a lot of work done in the field on that, um, but when we've done our work, we've really found a very low number of pregnancy losses directly associated with an active infection at the time of the loss. So it's about, certainly around 10% at most of these pregnancies that fail, we're able to culture bacteria associated with that, that pregnancy loss. So we think that's definitely a cause. It's one that's probably already well managed and understood. Um, but it's still a very small small portion and I think actually that data was quite helpful at understanding actually there's a lot we don't know um, about them. The other sort of approach we've been taking is looking at what we call risk factors for pregnancies to fail. So these are things that you can modify or in your management style. So um, we've done a, I've had a PhD student, Belinda Rose, who worked really hard on this looking at a very large data set of over 2,000 pregnancies and she looked at um, I think in the end we sort of had around 30 different risk factors that we we looked at and we managed to she created these these statistical models to look at which tear apart sort of tease apart which of those risk factors were most important and what we found is sort of mere age was really important which had been shown before but it really drove home the need for these for these practices and for the stud farms to think about the age of the mares and how to manage those mares more carefully because they're much more prone to losses um, and the other things, as soon as they've had one foal, they were at increased risk of, of losing a, a subsequent foal. We also found that uterine cysts, so these little cysts that form in the lining of the uterus, can increase the chance of them, them losing. And on a positive note, we found a drug that's now been starting to be used to cause the mares to ovulate was actually beneficial for maintaining the pregnancy. The mares that had received that were at de- decreased risk of um, losing their pregnancy. So we've been able to feed that back to the farms and and to the vets and and encourage use of that to try and minimise any any losses. Sounds uh, pretty pretty exciting. And um, with with your in, in, in a sort of global idea of, of research, do you, do you find it uh, easy in or not easy necessarily, but in your position to collaborate with uh, say with industry or, or clinical environments or indeed other other researchers looking into the areas that you're looking into yeah I, I would say yes actually yeah no we've been this it's probably one of the best parts of the job is actually collaborating with lots of people with different expertise um really interesting people really smart people and I think that's partly why I keep doing my job but we've been able to 
work um, a lot with the stud farm, so that the owners who have been very good at providing data to us and sharing that data, um, and that really we couldn't do what we do with, without that. The vets, I guess we've worked the geneticists, we work with Terry Rodsitz over at Texas A&M and the States. I continue to work with Doug Anzac over at Cornell University um, on different projects. So we've been, and I've been working more recently with Madeline Campbell, who does a, a lot of work on interested in the in the uterus, which is critical to establishing the pregnancy. So I'd say that we have been able to do that. As far as industry goes, I mean, I think that's a really what we've tried to expand that in recent years by regularly going to talk up in um, Newmarket or some other sort of. Um, conferences that are held for, for horse owners. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago I spoke at the Horse Tech Conference that was held here at the RBC that brought together racehorse owners and, and a lot of tech companies. Um, and I think that's really an important part of the job is to speak to those people. And you, you actually you realise we're all trying to work to the same thing and they can bring everyone can bring different expertise. So, you know, even things like database development, etc., that's been really um, helpful. So I encourage anyone else to... They're starting out to really try and reach out early on, I think, to, to industry as, as well as academic colleagues. And, and what, uh, Mandy, so far, obviously you're, you're uh, incredibly young in your, in your, in your career. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> well, well, that's, that's fine. Um, that, uh, what, what, uh, what, what do you think you've been you know, happiest about? Not necessarily your most successful um, thing, but what, what actually are you most proud about in, in, your, in your research career so far? You know, I think... What I've been, it's, I've been really lucky because it's been a couple of things. I guess one of the biggest things is actually the educational component in, in the research career. So I would say I've really loved working with undergraduate and graduate students and seeing them achieve their goals. So that is another part of what we do, which we don't often talk about, but actually that I think is actually instrumental to what we do and we really try and focus on that in the lab. So I feel really lucky to have worked with these people and, and been able to watch them take on other positions. As far as the research goes, um, you know, the, the great thing about being a researcher is I think, and why I do it is, I'm one of those people that see the data and just want to analyse it straight away because I'm so excited and want to find out the results. I was like this as a student. But I think the, the key things I was excited about was when we were able to get these pregnancies out for the first time and get material to study because, to me, that was one of our biggest roadblocks in this field. So that was, I think, one of our, our biggest sort of, sort of breakthroughs um, in that area. And the other thing we've had, um, which we published a few years ago, which is very exciting, is... We were looking at what regulates early placental development and a postdoc in the lab, Vicky Cabrera-Sharp, did some great work where she was characterising the, the signalling, so all the molecular processes in the early placenta, and we found a, a pathway um, regulated by a protein called BMP4, and this hadn't been shown in any mammalian species before, so we were able to demonstrate it to be functioning in the, in the horse placenta, and we've actually taken on some of that work into the, the human placenta. I think those two areas have been the most exciting. And what, for us. What, what is that work in the human placenta? Sorry, what? What, what is that work in yeah, the human so placenta? Yeah, so we we got a, a a grant a couple of years ago to start to look at the different components of this signaling pathway because the horse and the human placenta in some ways are, are very different. So the the horse placenta is quite superficial in how it implants, where the human placenta is quite invasive. But one thing that is similar is actually the production of a hormone called chorionic gonadotrophin. So the, the hormone that's used for basic pregnancy tests in human HCG 
um, is also actually the equivalent equine chorionic gonadotropins produced in the horse. And so one of the main cell types I've studied over the years and came passionate about when I first started working with Doug Anzacs, they're really fascinating cells, is the cells that produce ECG. And so what we can do when we study these cells, even though we do it in, in primarily to understand horse pregnancy and the production of this hormone is it can be informative of understanding the cells that produce HCG in, in human. And so we're really at the early stages in that work where we started to look at some of the molecules. We were able to find some of these molecules of this pathway in the human placenta. Um, and so the next step is to try and functionally assess that. So that's that's down the road. That sounds very exciting. And you, are you collaborating with some people looking at this in... in, in yeah, people? so we've we've worked over the years with um, Professor Judith Cartwright, who's down at St George's Medical School, and she's also taken some RBC students to go and work on their RP2 projects down there which has been quite exciting. So it was actually one of these students that did some of this work in the, the human placenta, um, and she's been a great support. And she's all, it's always good to talk to these people from a comparative aspect as well, so she's mm. been really helpful at helping us understand the human placenta and how our work might be applicable um, in that context. So you're talking about the, you know, providing opportunities to, to new people going into do, um, uh, so mm. RP2 is our, our mm. uh, undergraduate project here at the RBC, but, but what, what, what advice would you give to someone if they were interested in a, in a career in, in research, if, whether they're a vet student or, or, or general student? Oh, so advice, I think the first thing is try and make as many contacts as possible, speak to people and, and talk to people. So I think that's the first one, and learn from them. Everyone will have different perspectives on things, but the more you can hear, I think, is, is the better. Um, the second is to be really passionate about what you do, because I think otherwise you just don't survive in research, because it, it can be quite a tough environment, without a doubt. I won't ice put, the, put too much icing on it. Um, but if you really love what you do, I think you will continue through that because you really want, you do it as, it's really like a hobby in a way when you're, when you're a researcher because you, you tend to want to know the answer to something because you're generally curious. So if they find the right topic they're passionate about, I think find the right people to, to train them. I think, I think your PhD supervisors and postdoc supervisors are absolutely critical, so they have to find the right people. The systems, I, d I think in the early stages of your career, I think you need to find the right people to mentor you rather than necessarily the, the top, top, top. It, you can work towards that if you can get all the skills and the right people in place and try and sort of apply for funding, I guess, early on. So trying to get your, your mindset into the idea that you can apply for travel grants and things like that, I think it helps too. Were there a few people early in your career that uh, that in encouraged you or pointed you in the right direction, or, or whether they knew it or or not? Or? Yeah, it's a, it's a, there's been several actually, and I really can confidently say I don't think I would have got where I am without a couple of people along the way just guiding me. Um, and the first actually was someone when I was an undergraduate student, I a dean at the time, which you may know, David Fraser, Professor mm. David Fraser, wonderful wonderful man and um, he was really instrumental at getting me to apply and get into the programs in the states and I think those programs really completely changed my mindset as to to what you could do and he he was very encouraging um, in that way I was also had when I was in practice Jane Axon who I worked clinically who was a, a wonderful teacher and then um, over in the states sort of Doug Anzac who really help support me get my first academic position so I feel like those couple of people and there were lots of others that I haven't named but there are a couple of the um, instrumental ones that I feel were really 
key. And then as of here, I've been really lucky. Actually, all the other staff here have been incredibly supportive. I think you need that sort of network to, to keep going. Absolutely. And uh, Amanda, have you ever you ever thought if um, if you weren't uh, here, so so if you didn't if you didn't decide to go to the ANU, what what, what do you think you'd be you doing now? That's a good, good question, isn't it? Well, I, quite possibly, I did have a tipping point about which way I'd go after my PhD. So I did think of doing a residency and actually visited several vet schools to do a clinical residency. So I guess that possibly would have been the other path I would have taken has gone down a purely clinical path rather than a, a research path. To more of a, um, like a medicine. So a equi- I would medicine. have applied for an equine medicine residency and, and gone down that. And, and what what um, what tipped the the balance? Oh well, I went and had a cup of tea with someone. It was very convincing. No, no, I'm only joking. Well, I did do that, but um, <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> apart from that, I um, I just loved the research I was passionate about that and I really felt that that's where I could get the most satisfaction and and answer new questions and and get the most in- continue interest from I think so that was sort of the main the main area and you you've, you've lived here now for 10 years you've lived in the states for for a period of time as well and uh, and obviously home was Australia so, you, so where, where ideally would you would you live or is it <laughs> depend on where the work is or is the weather now here just uh, acceptable to you <laughs> I know it changes doesn't it <laughs> look um this is home for the moment certainly I've got three children and um he have all been born here and um, I think one thinks he's English, the other thinks he's Australian, and the, the daughter's a bit unsure yet. So um, this is very much home for the moment. Although the weather may eventually <laughs> get to me. Draws everyone back. <laughs> back to Australia. Who could? And and uh, and finally, Mandy, I just just as um, we all know that uh, mental health awareness is is incredibly important in the profession as as it is mm-hmm. throughout. Do, do you have any uh, um, any simple advice or advice that you give yourself just on a more of a daily or weekly basis how to uh, make sure that you're okay? Yeah, that's a it's absolutely critical, isn't it, to to all our performance day on day and all our happiness. I think probably the advice would be to to every now and again stop and reflect and I think life gets so busy these days so I try and actually when I'm at home now with the the family I try and completely switch off work which I can't say these sort of bits of advice often sound simple but they're not easy is my catchphrase for this and and I'm not always good at following my own advice I'll be honest about but um, I think the, the key thing for me is being able to to switch off and have time with the family, have a hobby. I've just started horse riding again very recently, which I hadn't done in about 10 years, so that's been um, fantastic. And um, and having some time to yourself, because I think actually at the end of the day you also become more produ- you become mentally healthier but also more, more productive if you can take some time out for yourself. Absolutely. Are you, are you teaching your kids how to ride? Or? Yeah, they actually, Saturday they got... On horses for the first time, yeah. so that was very exciting to so, see that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mandy, for your for your time today, and uh, I hope that we uh, have another conversation in the in the future. Thanks, Tom. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers.
Many thanks for your time today, Mandy, and uh, thank you for again for listening. So please don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and that way you won't even have to worry about uh, missing one of the podcast episodes. If you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Acast, then that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, uh, vet friends, or any friends who you think might be interested in listening to this uh, research podcast. We played a couple of placed a couple of show notes in the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Research Podcast in your search engine, it should be top of the tree. This is still a pretty um, new in its reincarnation of the of the RBC Research Podcast, and we'd be really grateful if you have any uh, topics or suggestions for this podcast, or um, even the, the the style or manner of of, uh, of questions or information that you'd be interested in. So you can either get in touch and email me at uh, dbarfield@rvc.ac.uk, or you can tweet at Tom Barfield. Until next time, bye bye. <laughs>